portion of God's Word. Father, again, we are truly humbled as we read your word. We are confronted with you, the mighty and powerful God, whose might and strength changes lives. Lord, we pray that today you might give us understanding and clarity as we look into this portion of your word. May we, like the the man we read about who was healed, may we, in leaving this place, leave with such joy in our hearts that we can't hardly contain it. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. The question I wanted to begin today in this message is this. Are there modern-day apostles who have the gift, a signed gift of healing, in the church today? Now, how we answer that question is most often traced back to our interpretation, our understanding of and how we handle the events of the book of Acts. I hope you have your Bible open to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at a number of passages here at the beginning of my message today. But before that, I want to just say, In reading this text about the healing of this lame beggar, brought back a memory from my early years when there was still black and white television. And I could vividly recall the first time I saw Oral Roberts sitting in a chair, a little bit elevated, and there were people that were brought to him, and he would speak to these people, and he would Uh, raise his voice, and he would dramatically command these diseases to leave these people. I was just mesmerized as a kid thinking, what is going on? It was so different than anything I'd ever seen or experienced in my short life. And as you know, he was one of these, probably one of the leading ones who began to jump on the bandwagon of using television, claiming to be a faith healer claiming to have actually raised multiple people from the dead, Oral Roberts. Of course, he himself is dead now. I, don't, I guess you know that. Uh, but one of his most famous successors, people who have now followed in his path and trail, is Benny Hinn. Perhaps you may, may have seen his television programs called This Is Your Day. It is broadcast and watched Probably 20 million people in the United States alone watch this broadcast. It is broadcast in 200 countries around the world. He is madly popular. And he claims also to be able to replicate the healings of the apostolic age. Now, I'm not here to spend all my time talking about people who make these claims and who are involved in these kinds of activities. But here's what I want to say. The tragic reality is that these various charismatic leaders claim, they claim to have supernatural power. But I am convinced, and there are many other people who have done very serious research on this, there's nothing truly miraculous being done through them. Many of their so-called healings are psychosomatic ailments. Because the people who leave these large gatherings, who came there for the healing, who are in the wheelchairs, who are uh, immobilized, who have cancer, who have uh, various serious forms of 
deformities and different problems, they are left behind, never given the opportunity to be even uh, have access to the individual who supposedly has this gift of healing. And the other sad reality is that these same individuals are those who promote and solicit the so-called seed money, encouraging people who are vulnerable, who are desperately needy, who are looking for God to somehow give them help in their physical problems. They're promising to these people, if you'll give the seed money to this particular ministry or to me, they say, then you will be promised a harvest of blessing. And the larger gift that you send me, the person would say, oh, the greater the blessings God will pour out on you. So much so that one quote from Benny Hinn was, make the gift. That's the only way you're going to get your miracle. As you give, the miracle will begin. What a change from what we see in Acts chapter 3. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that God does heal people today. I am not disputing that issue. What I am disputing and what I'm trying to help us think through this morning is this idea of people who claim to have an apostolic gift of healing, as we see demonstrated in this dramatic text in Acts chapter 3. I want to cut through a lot of confusion and misleading claims this morning regarding healing. I want to show you in the scriptures what my understanding is and what I believe the scriptures there clearly teach, that there were certain people, New Testament apostles, who had to meet certain qualifications in order to be a New Testament apostle. Number one, they had to be a person who was appointed to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. They also had to be a witness of his resurrection. That limits the number to people who are in the first century. And they had to be able to authenticate their apostle, apostolic appointment with miraculous signs. You say, where did you get that? Well, if you look through the scriptures again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we realize that the 12 apostles were given a very unique role in the beginning of the church. They were called in Ephesians 2.20 that they were those who are the foundation of the church is built, sorry, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So where is the foundation in a building? Those of you who have ever seen a building go up, it's always on the what? On the ground floor, right? Or below the ground floor. It's always in the ground. And upon which is built the rest of the stories of the building, right? You don't find the foundation of a building on the 50th floor, right? So apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Therefore, they are uh, always thought of as being always put things in place, and then things which have come now subsequently have been built upon that foundation. It is these first century men who are appointed to a unique task. They were done, that, that appointment will happen at the beginning of the church. It's a unique time in redemptive history we're reading about in the book of Acts. And therefore, the specific type of Jesus-appointed apostles no longer function in the church today. That's my premise. I'm saying that these unique experiences and miracles were indicative of the first century apostles who had unique abilities and signed gifts. 
And they were just that, signed gifts to authenticate the fact that they were legitimate representatives in the formative years of the first century church. I shared with you last week, 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, a verse if you're not familiar with it, you ought to highlight it in your Bible because it speaks so clearly to this issue. And I will quote 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, that is, attesting miracles and wonders and miracles, or also literally translated works of power. So a true apostle is always authenticated by these kinds of miraculous powers. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised as we read through the book of Acts. We find a number of instances in which the apostles healed people through this attesting power they had received from God. Look at Acts 4, 29 and 30. If you have your Bible open, I hope you do, or if you got your tablet there, you can follow along. Acts chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. The, the apostles are praying, and they pray, Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They are anticipating that God will continue to work through them with these miraculous signs and wonders. And then if you look at chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. At the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Chapter 14, verse 3. This is a passage where now we've got Paul and Barnabas traveling together as missionaries on their trips. Paul and Barnabas spent a long time, Acts 14.3, in Iconium, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. How was he bearing witness to that? Granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Then if you back up to chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, they even carried the sick, Acts 5, verse 15 and 16. They carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Another example, chapter 19 of Acts, verses 11 and 12, we read, God was performing extraordinary miracles or works of power by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. Again, Acts 8, I won't take the time to read it. Philip is ministering in Samaria, healing people. In Lystra, there's a lame man that's healed. In Acts 14, in Acts 28, in the island of, island of Malta, Paul heals a person there. I'm just trying to lay out for you the evidence in the scriptures. Now, let me make a couple of observations about this biblical evidence. As I've thought about it and looked carefully at the various miracles and healings performed by the apostles in the first century and in Acts. First of all, as far as we can tell, 
all the people that were healed were unbelievers. Unbelievers. Some of these people became believers at the time that they were healed, but that is something that happened as a result of the healing, not because they were already a believer. These miracles were never performed within the sphere of the local church. In other words, never do we read of the sign gift of healing being used to build up the members of the body of Christ. It's not a, a gift that's being utilized to help each other as fellow brothers and sisters, as other gifts recorded in 1 Corinthians 12 and other places in the Bible, to build up the body of Christ. This is more of a gift that helps to bring about evangelism and the spreading of the word and the gospel as it's going forward, particularly there in the first century. Secondly, the sign gift of healing did not enable an apostle to heal everyone. Just having a sign gift and you being an apostle in the first century did not mean that you therefore could heal anyone and everyone that you wanted to. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says that he left Trophimus, a fellow a worker in the ministry of the word there, he left him sick in Miletus. He had to leave him behind. He couldn't bring him along. The guy was in ill health. Now, here's Paul. He could have, what? Could have healed this guy. But no, he couldn't. He was not given the ability to do such. And when Timothy complains of having some stomach ailments, and Paul writes him in 2 Corinthians, oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells Timothy, listen, Timothy, drink, drink a little bit of that wine for the sake of your stomach. Now, Paul didn't say, listen, Hope you get better. I'm sending a handkerchief to you through one of my fellow brothers, and he's going to just put that thing on your stomach and you think you'll be fine. He didn't say that. So it's clear that his ability to heal all these people was not complete. It's not something that he could heal everybody at any time. And I would suggest that even as, as the first century began to move forward, as you get toward the latter part of Acts, the number of healings will slow down. I believe it is decreasing the farther out you get into the first century. Thirdly, the works of power that the apostles were given to heal were signs that were pointing beyond the miracle itself. In other words, they had some teaching value to these particular miracles. One example would be Jesus when he healed Lazarus from the dead. He goes on and takes that opportunity to teach about the fact that what? He is the resurrection from the dead. He is, the, he is the resurrection and the life. And so apostolic miracles provide a picture of, I think, of what Jesus came to do. And Jesus came to bring about full and complete restoration. And if you look in chapter 3, verse 21, which we hope to get to uh, next week, Lord willing, even Peter alludes to a time of restoration, a time in which God is going to one day see the curse of sin removed. 321 talks about a period of restoration of all things. Things we're going to finally put back into their rightful order, including the fact of dealing, getting rid of uh, not only sin, but the, the, the effects of sin, and that is disease and sickness and malformity. One commentator, Derek Thomas, I thought offered a very helpful insight. He said, sickness oftentimes is a picture 
of what sin has done to us spiritually. It twists and misshapens our lives. And one day in the new world, Jesus, in the new world he recreates, one day we will be healed. And those with disabilities will one day be liberated. One day the underlying cause of sickness, that is sin, will fully be dealt with. Now I'm not suggesting that there is a direct correlation between someone having a disability in this world with something specifically they have done. I'm just saying that there's a general truth that we all are suffering various forms of the effects of the curse of sin. And one of those is sin, disease, and physical ailments. Now, with all this background in mind, I want us to now focus on these first 12 verses of Acts. That's just all the background. And I realize my points are going to be a little shorter here, um, trying to say what I'm saying in a, in a succinct way. Um, and I am recommending, by the way, in chapter 3, if you just in your mind is dismiss this chapter division. Imagine it doesn't say chapter 3 and that there's a, there's a gap between what you read in chapter 2 and then chapter 3. Because again, originally as it was written, there would be no chapter division. And I would suggest to you that what we read here in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3 is an unmistakable example of what he mentions in chapter 2, verse 43. Again, going back to chapter 2, verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Clearly, that's what he's going to show an example of now in chapter 3, verse 1 and following. And so we find in this account of the healing of the lame beggar three points of analogy between this powerful healing of this body of this man who cannot stand who was born that way, through the Apostle Peter's sign gift. That's We're going to look at just the example of what actually happens through this powerful healing of his body. And then we're going to compare that with the powerful healing of the soul that comes through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. My first point here is to think about the man. Luke, as you recall, was a physician. He's a doctor. He is vitally interested in doing research to understand what exactly took place on this amazing miracle of restoration. And so Luke is going to include a number of details here, which would indicate he has interviewed a number of people and he's got his facts straight. And he provides information about this crippled man, that he was a man who did not develop this problem. He was born with this problem. And therefore, he was a congenital disability. And if you'll notice in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 22, he includes the fact, and Peter does, that the man was 40 years of age. So here's a man, 40 years old, and it's not clear how long he had been begging at the particular place where he had been uh, uh, placed there in the temple complex. Uh, but apparently his friends and apparently some family members perhaps make sure that he gets transported to that gate in the temple complex every day, day after day, where he is going to beg for donations. He's asking for alms from the worshipers that are coming into the complex and they can't miss him because he's right there. And here you have all these people who are trying to go and render to God appropriate ways of expressing their desire to honor God, to 
what a boy, great place to try to draw from them maybe some compassionate alms that they might pour, uh, give you. And so it really was, of all the places to beg for alms, it must have been one of the most coveted locations. If you're going to find a generous donor, this is the place you're going to find them. Now, this, this beggar is relying upon financial donations of those who came to worship. But you must understand, he was left in that one location as people filed past him. Person after person after person. And he just stayed right there. He was never participating in the worship services. He was a social outcast. Or if you will, he was a religious outcast. He was unable to move about on his own. He was unable to heal himself. And surely he would have if he could have. And my point number one here is we see the need for healing grace. Forty years this gentleman was begging and in need of help. And so we see a total inability. The need for healing grace, we see a total inability. This unnamed man is a picture, I believe, of the effect of sin on our souls. That when Peter commanded the gentleman in verse 6, he says to him, walk. That man had no ability to do so. Or he would have done so earlier in his life. In a similar way, sin has so corrupted every single one of us that we lack the ability to do what the gospel commands. We lack the ability to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we say and think and do. We lack the ability to repent and believe. Sin does not merely affect our minds. It doesn't just affect our desires. It affects even our will in the things that we desire to do. Unless God changes our hearts, we will only choose to reject Him again and again. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at John chapter 6. In, just back up one book. John chapter 6, page 1268 in your pew Bible. And listen to what Jesus taught. Again, I'm suggesting to you that this is a helpful example of the doctrine of total inability. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He repeats the statement and expands on it, John 665, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Now, there's a big difference between can and may, right? You used to say, you know, mother, may I go outside and play? Yes, you can go outside and play. You have permission. You, you are able to do so. But I'm sorry, may means permission. Can means ability. Yes, you can. You have the freedom. Go ahead you can uh, run out the door, whatever. So, all of us enter the world totally depraved. Now, I don't mean by that, that's a theological term, I don't mean by that that we are as wicked as we possibly can be. We do all of the, as many wicked things as we possibly can conceive of. No, that's not true, thank the Lord. 
But theologians use that term to refer to the fact that sin has affected every aspect of our being. That there's not a part of us that's not affected by sin. And so therefore, it affects our thoughts, our desires, our will, our heart. All of us, apart from the powerful, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we are spiritually where this lame man was physically. That is, we are unable to heal ourselves. We are unable to do what is asked of us. That's why Paul, when he describes the condition of people who are outside of Christ, who are, uh, who are spiritually not alive, they are dead, he speaks of them, Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, they're spiritually unable to do anything with regard to pleasing God and walking in his ways. That's why he calls about dead in our transgressions. Apart from God's help, we are unable to reform ourselves. We can't make ourselves better and acceptable to God on our own. And all of us are in need of help outside of ourselves. And that's why I'm convinced. What's astounding as you read this particular miracle in the beginning of chapter 3 of Acts is it is, comes on the heels of an amazing passage of Scripture in chapter 2 where God does just that. God did what they couldn't do. 3,000 people have just now come to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost alone. And it was not because Peter and his other cohorts, their apostles, were very clever and they had this innovative technique. And therefore, it's because of the, the amazing ways that they put these words together and the situations that had the magic, the lights on, the smoke going, and they had this amazing dramatic presentation. No, it wasn't that. It was the power of the Holy Spirit using the power of the Word of God to change the heart that was dead in sin. It was the Holy Spirit at work there, and that's my point. Acts 2 and all of those conversions would never have taken place apart from the Holy Spirit doing what the people there, those 3,000 people, couldn't do on their own. Same thing is true of this man. Physically, what's happening to him is true of us spiritually. Point number two. I want us to consider now the power of healing grace. The power of healing grace. It was instantaneous miracle. Here's this lame beggar who had over time, I'm sure, if you've had that much time to sit and to try to draw resources to yourself, I'm sure you would have come up with some sort of tactics, some sort of means whereby you communicate with people to collect the alms from these worshipers. There's certain things I guess he must have said that were more effective than others. I would imagine he repeatedly is asking each worshiper for a donation. He's trying to make some sort of Look at me and notice me as you walk past me. Don't just ignore me. So he probably is saying, alms please, alms please. Maybe you've heard someone do that. Verse 3, by the way, implies continuous asking on the part of this gentleman. And most worshipers who are filing in to attend the prayer service if they were not inclined to make a donation, what would they do? Look away. Do not make eye contact, right? The worst thing you do is make eye contact because then once you make eye contact, then you've noticed them and therefore you feel like, well, I've got to do something. And that's why it's amazing. Look at verse 4. Peter and John made what? 
eye contact, not just a glancing look. They were staring at him. They noticed him. They fixed their gaze upon him. And I would dare say that this man, when this occurred, and they see these gentlemen looking at him, he's thrilled to think, oh, somebody has noticed me. He's assuming wrongly that they're about to give him a very generous donation, perhaps. Instead, and that's verse 5 tells us that, instead the man was stunned to hear Peter say something dramatically different than what he anticipated to hear. Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold. Isn't that an interesting contrast to so many of these charlatans who today are asking for their money and then they'll promise you somehow they'll get a healing out of it. Peter says, I don't have any money on me. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Here is Peter acting on the authority and the character of Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. Yes, he's from Nazarene. That shows of his humble beginnings. But he is Jesus, the Messiah. And in his name, Peter is saying to him, Walk. Now notice what Peter does. He reaches down and grabs this guy by the hand. Nowhere in the text does that indicate that had any change in the man at all. But he did extend his hand to him in a gracious, compassionate way, and he helped the man up onto his feet. And Luke, and I don't have time to go into this, but all the commentators notice carefully the wording here. Luke is using some very rarely used medical terminology here, trying to describe what is happening at that point in verse 7, where immediately we read, his feet and ankles were strengthened. He's using technical words for the different parts of the foot and ankle. Immediately strengthened. This was not a partial healing. This was not a progressive healing. This was not a type of healing that says, okay, now I want you to get up, now lean on me, we'll get you some crutches, and you go for a couple of weeks of therapy, and maybe you'll be able to move that ankle again. Not at all. The man stands upright. He begins to walk around for the first time in his life. What an occasion that must have been. And it was obvious to everyone involved that Peter did not, just by extending his right hand to this man, remedy the man's lifelong problem. This is not something Peter did. Clearly, God's power brought about the healing. And Peter and John were agents of his mercy and grace. And that's what Peter says in verse 12. As he makes it very clear, he says, Do not marvel at this. Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made this man walk? We had nothing to do with this amazing miracle in terms of our own power. This is the power of Christ at work in bringing this about. Now, what do we learn as a lesson for us? I believe there are a couple of things I'd like to draw out of this text as lessons for us that I believe Luke has included in this healing of this lame man. Number one. I am convinced that the reason, one of the reasons that Luke includes this is to provide hope. Hope for people who, in reading this, think to themselves, there is no cure for a person like me. Available for someone who has a wicked heart, as wicked as my heart is. 
If you really knew me, if you knew what I am involved in, if you knew my past, you would know along with me that I dare say there's no remedy available to somehow make my relationship right with God. Again, it's unclear how long this man, who is 40 years of age, how long has he been begging in that temple? It doesn't say. But he must have assumed, I would dare say, that his condition and his situation, his status would never change. I think that he must have concluded, I will die in this condition. He must have assumed that he would remain an outsider all of his life, observing people go past him who somehow can therefore approach God. His dream was only contained with the idea of getting coins, obtaining money. Money was really what he was longing for, not in a bad way, money to survive, money to meet in his daily sustenance and the things he needed to survive. There was no uh, net of, of support for people like this at the time. And he finds himself here Instead of receiving a coin or two, he finds himself the recipient of wondrous healing grace from God. He's raised up. He's restored. He's enabled to enter the temple with other worshipers. It says so right there in the text, verse 8. Jesus is able to impart new life in a person who assumes they will have no change of heart as long as they live. They'll be this way until they die. And the gospel says no. The gospel says Jesus is able to change you radically from the inside out. He's able to free you and set you free from bondage in sin. There is hope of transformation in this miracle, my friend. We dare not miss it. Now, I've thought on the other side of the angle of thinking about the, what this miracle portrays for us is that those of us who are involved and in having been set free, those of us who have seen the miracle of regeneration take place in our hearts, and we're trying to share in our own feeble way the good news of Jesus Christ. We're trying to make gospel known to people we know and love. We're wondering to ourselves, will anyone respond in faith to this feeble presentation of the gospel that I keep trying. I stumble over my words and try to make clear to other people. Will anyone find themselves responding in faith to what I'm saying? May I just say, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to bestow the gift of faith on the most unlikely person with whom we extend our hand of offering the truths of the gospel. Who would have ever known that this man would be the one they've walked past week after week as an outsider has become one of them through the grace of God who invaded his life? And there are numerous stories of how God does that, and I don't have time to go through all of them, but I was thinking of two very well-known Christian leaders, people who were the heavy hitters in the kingdom in the sense of their impact and their ability to speak and handle the word of God. John Owen was one of them, one of the great Puritans. He was brought to faith as a result of a substitute minister who came and preached on the occasion which he came to faith. And it was 
Charles Spurgeon, who because of weather conditions, he was headed off the church as a young man, and it was snowing. And so he finds his way down to some church at the end of some little block. He doesn't, doesn't know anything about this church. Comes in there and the pastor can't arrive. And so some layman gets up and he speaks on one verse. And through that one verse, and an untrained man that didn't know how to preach, here Charles Spurgeon comes to faith when the mighty Spirit, Holy Spirit takes the word, applies it to his heart, brings him to, fight, to life in Christ. It was Augustine who was summoned by children if you recall, on the other side of a garden, saying, take up and read, take up and read. Some little song, some little ditty, some little thing you can't get out of your mind, probably a repetitive little song, was the, was the call, in a sense, that Augustine heard, and he took up the Word of God, opens the Scriptures and reads, no longer involve yourself in wild, sinful living, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was radically and dramatically saved changed his heart, one of the powerful believers in the early church. Again, I'm reminded, you never know what God will use and what God can do through our faithful, simple presentation of the scriptures and the gospel to people. The power of God can change people's hearts, regardless of how effective or ineffective we are sometimes present the truth. Thirdly, I would like to say, we're also reminded that the gospel proclamation should always be paired up with gospel compassion and practical demonstrations of love. I can't get over the fact that Peter extends his hand. He not only looks at him, he gives him the courtesy of noticing he's there, realizing he's a true person with real needs. He speaks to them and then he extends his hand. I would dare say there are many people in our world who are looking for somebody to at least extend a hand to them to give them a little help who would be much more likely to hear the gospel because we've shown them that we truly care about them. We see them as people who are hurting. There's a balance here somewhere, and I think it's a good one if we could find it. All right, I'm going to move on. There's much more I could say there, but I want to look at my third point and my last point, and that is this. We find the response to healing grace, response to healing grace. And what do we see? Immeasurable joy. Oh, I love this text. Because of that joy. Here Luke describes as best he can the reaction of this healed lame beggar who is no longer lame. And look at that, verse 8. <clears throat> I guess you call these things gerunds in English. I don't want to be technical in terms of the parts of speech, but the I-N-G words. Walking Leaping, praising God. Isn't that great? Walking, leaping, and praising God. After 40 years of being carried from place to place, 40 years of sitting or lying in the same one place, the man is on the move. No one has coerced him to move about. His excitement is what? It just comes out of him. <laughs> he can't help it. He is so thrilled. His excitement cannot be contained. His joy is so outwardly evident to those around him. His elation, which included not only his walking, by the way, just catch how many times Luke included the word walking there? It's four times. Walking, walking, walking. There he is walking. Walking, leaping, jumping up and down. 
I can't help but think that there is in the mind of perhaps Luke here is Isaiah 35. You might want to jot that down, look at it later. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. It's a partial fulfillment of this wonderful prophetic word. It says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Watch this. The lame will leap like a deer. Have you ever seen a deer leap? Oh, they just bound up, don't they? It's amazing. They can jump over fences. And you should see them jump when my mother... Back in my home I grew up in, on top of the hill, West Virginia, we're in the, we're in the capital city, city limits. Anyway, there's a deer in the front yard, and she didn't like deer in the front yard, and she would take her tennis racket in her 80s, and she'd take a tennis ball, and she'd whack that thing and scare that deer off, and that deer would bound out of there, I'm telling you, only to come back tomorrow. Anyway, the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. May I suggest that one of the evidences of true spiritual healing, if we undergo this wondrous healing grace of God in the gospel, one of the evidences of that is a desire to make much of God. It's a, it, it's a desire to delight in God, to enjoy God, the one who has healed us. From our helpless, paralyzed state, God brings us to life instantaneously by the work of the Holy Spirit, what we call regeneration. Now, when God does that, when we are made alive unto God, does it make sense for us to go about and to be boasting about the fact that we have made such wise decisions and that these decisions and this keen spiritual insight that we've had that led us to make the better choices than those around us who are still in their sins and those who are still in their unregenerate state, do we see ourselves as being better than the people who are still living in spiritual darkness? I sure hope not. I don't think this man was boasting about the fact, well, look what I did that got healed. That I got healed. There's no boasting. We rejoice with joy unspeakable that God, by His grace, would impart within us a new nature. That He would grant to us a new status before Him. That He would enable us to what? To be alive unto Him. And to have our sins removed as being a hindrance from us enjoying Him through what Christ did on the cross. I dare say that true regenerating Grace leads to spiritual life. And how do you know if you have spiritual life? It means you see the evidence of a strong desire to read the Word, to hear the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to have a passionate enjoyment of fellowship with other believers who are also alive in Christ. And you also have a new desire for communion with God in prayer. Why? Because you were once dead in your sins, now you're alive unto God. And so I say, if this is something God has done in our hearts and lives, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for thinking that we're better than somebody else. Because we say with Paul, it was from God. Everything is through God. Everything is to God. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. We thank you that 
it does point us, Lord, beyond just the physical. And we do, Lord, thank you that there is promise someday of having all these physical ailments and sicknesses, deformities and forms of cancer and so much suffering, Lord, that goes on in this world. People who are limited in their abilities and they can't help it, Lord. We thank you that there's a hope of a new world. How we thank you that our Lord Jesus came to bring a recreation of the world that was corrupted by sin. But Lord, we thank you that there's more here to celebrate than just that. We thank you that there's hope for those of us who need healing in our hearts, who need a new nature, who are desperately in need of being made alive in Christ. We thank you that there's hope in Christ. We thank you that his working in the hearts of people like us is not based on how good we are or how what we can bring to him to impress him, but Lord, we thank you that his dealings with us is in grace, undeserved favor. We pray, Lord, that we might see many people's lives changed through that gracious, wondrous, healing grace. Today, Lord, and in the days ahead, as we think about this holy week, pray, Father, as we think about all that Jesus Christ underwent as he himself suffered and became unable to move, and lost all physical strength and died so that we might live. Lord, may our hearts be so overflowing with joy, unspeakable. May it embolden us to share the good news of the gospel with many of those around us. And may we be reminded, Lord, that we have nothing to boast about except your grace shown to unworthy sinners like us. May you be honored. May you be glorified. May you receive all of the credit for it is all of you as none of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.